This is the LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast, including litigation news stories from recent issues of LexisNexis Mealy's publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. LexisNexis Podcasts, voted top legal-oriented podcast in a 2008 ABA Journal Blog 100, the annual reader survey of the best websites for lawyers, as chosen by the editors of the ABA Journal. The New York Court of Appeals has held that the juvenile nighttime curfew adopted by the Rochester City Council violates the federal and New York state constitutions. In the context of juvenile curfews, the court was persuaded by the reasoning which recognizes that although children have rights protected by the Constitution, they can be subject to greater regulation and control by the state than can adults. But the court found the proof offered by the city did not support the goals of the curfew. As the appellate division observed, quote, a common theme is that city officials perceived a pressing need to respond to the problem of juvenile victimization and crime as a result of the tragic deaths of three minors, end of quote. These incidents, the court said, would not have been prevented by the curfew because two of the victims were killed during hours outside the curfew, and the third, as a result of being adjudicated a person in need of supervision, was already subject to an individualized curfew. Thus, the incidents do not provide the necessary nexus, the court said, between the curfew and the ordinance's stated purpose. Further, it said the crime statistics produced by the defendants did not support the objectives of Rochester's nocturnal curfew. Letters that were faxed to an ERISA disability claimant's attorney indicating the procedures for filing an administrative appeal of the termination of claimant's benefits constituted sufficient notice of the denial. The Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals found the claimant's failure to exhaust administrative remedies was not excused. Robin Klotz worked for Xerox and was a participant in the Xerox Long-Term Disability Income Plan. SHPS Incorporated was the claims administrator for the plan and sent Klotz a letter advising her that her disability benefits were being terminated because she failed to respond to the plan's attempt to contact her. Klotz's attorney sent a letter to the administrator indicating that she was appealing the termination. SHPS sent Klotz notice by certified mail to her home that it was denying her appeal and indicating what was necessary to file a final appeal, but the letter was returned as undeliverable. The administrator also faxed the letter to Klotz's attorney and received confirmation that the fax was received by the attorney's fax machine. However, Klotz's attorney failed to deliver the notice to Klotz, and she did not file a final appeal. After Klotz sued Xerox and the administrator seeking restoration of her disability benefits, the Western District of New York ruled in the company's favor finding she failed to exhaust administrative remedies because she did not utilize the second level of the company's appeals process. In affirming, the Second Circuit rejected Klotz's argument that exhaustion should be excused because the administrator failed to provide notice that her first appeal was denied. The appeals panel explained there is no requirement that a particular method of notification be used, and administrators have the discretion to determine an appropriate delivery method. The court said the defendant's, quote, reliance on providing notice to Klotz's attorney was consistent with the principle that the relationship between a client and attorney is a principal-agent relationship, end of quote. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Michael Lefkowitz. The Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals has affirmed that an investor's claims of securities fraud against investment bank KPMG and the law firm Sidley Austin Brown & Wood 
relating to his purchase of unlawful tax shelters are barred by the statute of limitations. Edward Arnold appealed the Southern District of New York's dismissal of his case, in which he seeks damages from his purchase of tax shelters from KPMG with the endorsement of Sidley Austin, which were determined by the Internal Revenue Service to be unlawful tax avoidance schemes. Arnold's case was stayed in December 2005 in light of another class action against the same defendants. He chose to opt out of the settlement arising from that case. The circuit court panel held that at the time of Arnold's securities actions, the three-year statute of repose begins to run the date the parties have committed themselves to completing the purchase or sales transaction. Here, the court said, Arnold's claim is based on a series of securities transactions he executed in late 1997. However, his lawsuit was not filed until August 2005. Accordingly, it said the district court correctly concluded the plaintiff's federal securities claims were time-barred as of December 31, 2000, almost five years before the start of this action. The appeals court said Arnold's contention that the period of repose begins to run at the time of the last alleged misrepresentation, even when made after the final purchase or sale of the securities, ignores the applicable limitations period and is devoid of merit. The panel also held the three-year statute of limitations period for Arnold's state law claims begins to run May 13, 1998, the date KPMG issued a formal opinion letter to him regarding the tax shelters, and therefore his claims are time-barred and it held that his legal malpractice claims were similarly time-barred. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's Emerging Securities Report Editor, Tim Robb. In response to an invitation by the U.S. Supreme Court to express her views, the Solicitor General has recommended that the court decline to hear disputes over pension payments for workers rehired by Xerox Corporation. The issues presented by three cases include whether the U.S. District Courts must defer to a plan administrator's opinion on how to remedy a violation when the administrator's denial of benefits violated the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, whether the district court's choice of remedy should be reviewed for abuse of discretion, and whether a general release form that is executed in exchange for severance pay violates ERISA. The plaintiffs are former Xerox employees who left the company and received lump sum distributions from Xerox's Retirement Income Guarantee Plan then years later were rehired by Xerox, which resulted in their again accruing benefits under the plan. After returning to work for the company, the plaintiff's pension benefits were subject to the plan's, quote, phantom offset provision that allowed the plan administrators to offset the plaintiff's lump sum distributions, plus any sum that the distribution would have earned had it remained in the fund, against the retirement benefits accruing as a result of the employees being rehired. In July 2008, the Second Circuit affirmed the Western District of New York's conclusion that the appropriate remedy for employees hired before a 1998 amendment was to direct the plan administrator to pay each of them a lump sum in the amount of the difference between the amount of benefits that an employee has received and the amount of the recalculated benefit without any consideration of a phantom account. In saying the cases do not warrant review, Solicitor General Elena Kagan says because, quote, the Court of Appeals had determined that the plan terms were silent on the appropriate offset method, the district court had discretion to select a reasonable method in the exercise of its discretion to craft an appropriate remedy for the ERISA violations. A federal judge in the Eastern District of New York in mid-May rejected a lawsuit filed by a former aide to President George W. Bush, who alleged the Walt Disney Company and others infringed his copyright with a motion picture swing vote. Bradley Blakeman sued Disney and co-defendants Touchstone Pictures, Kelsey Grammer, and others, alleging that in 2006, 
He gave Grammer a copyrighted screenplay of Go November that had similar plot and marketing elements. Blakeman claimed Grammer gave him the impression he was interested in making a movie out of Blakeman's work, but that after he provided him with a screenplay, he never heard from Grammer again. Instead, Grammer and Disney produced Swing Vote, which Blakeman claims contains numerous similar elements, including similarities of plot and marketing strategies. The court disagreed, however, finding no substantial similarity between the works. It said although Blakeman's plot revolves around a series of dirty tricks undertaken by both sides in a heated presidential campaign, Swing Vote focuses on the relationships among a flawed protagonist, his daughter, and a local reporter. The court said, quote, given the vastly different themes, plot, scenes, characters, sequence, pace, setting, and overall concept and feel, and the lack of any similarities or protectable elements in this case in any of those categories, no rational fact finder could conclude that the works are substantially similar. An arbitration panel awarded the City of New York $1.5 million for its final four claims against the Celotex Asbestos Settlement Trust for asbestos damage to city schools and other buildings. Celotex made, marketed, and distributed building materials until the mid-1980s. It filed for bankruptcy in 1990, and as part of the reorganization, a trust was set up to pay asbestos claims resulting from thousands of lawsuits. The city filed about 700 claims with the Celotex Trust, and the Property Damages Claims Administrator allowed close to 480 of the submitted claims, but opposition to payment of the claims forced the city to litigate to secure the money owed to it. The courts allowed most of the claims, but an issue remained as to the validity of four claims based on a patent. The 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals ruled the city must show that Celotex's predecessor was capable of exercising control over the patented asbestos product that ended up in city buildings. The award brings the city's total recovery against Celotex to $60 million. The Lexus One Community where individual attorneys are going for free case law, the Lexus web search engine, free forms, and Mealy's Online. Get access to Lexus.com through research packages for the time you need without signing a long-term contract. Check out Emerging Issues Analysis, News, Blogs, The Download Center, the LexisNexis Store, and more. Lexus One, the online community and research resource for individual attorneys. www.lexusone.com for more information on these and other litigation news stories, visit www.lexisnexus.com slash or totallitigator.com. The LexisNexus New York Legal News Podcast was written by the editors of LexisNexus Mealy's Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. Copyright 2009 by LexisNexus, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexus, total practice solutions. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.